Hey ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 26 of our podcast. Wow. Thank you for joining us. And if you're new here, it's best to start at episode one, because this is a story project, and it goes in order. We've had such an amazing time researching it and working on it, and we can't wait to share it with you, thousands of listeners from all over the world. It's so exciting for us to be here with you and... We hope that you will support the podcast digitally. And the way that you can do that is to buy me a coffee. And buy me a coffee. The more coffee you buy, the more support you give us. So type in buy me a coffee as one word and then Tudor Time Machine into your favorite search engine. And you can find our page where you can buy me a coffee. Or use the shop button on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page and join the page. It's a different debate every day about Tudor Times. And the shop button at the top of the page will zip take you to our Buy Me a Coffee page. And support the podcast. In our last episode, we saw the parting of Cecilia and her husband, the Margrave. Now we're taking our Tudor time machine back to 1526 to look in on the love affair between Sir Thomas Wyatt and Anne Boleyn. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jessie. Chapter 26, 1526, The Rooms of Sir Thomas Wyatt, in which a ring trumps a ribbon. Wyatt hated his sister's caterwauling, overplaying a little altercation during a game of bowls. The tutor baited him. He and Henry had disputed shots many times, but when the royal finger adorned with Anne's ring pointed and waved in his face, it was only right to whip out Anne's ribbon, which all had seen around her neck. Henry liked it when he played the Rudesby. They were friends, and now the king understood that he, Sir Thomas Wyatt, had a desire for Anne that was no common flirtation. "'Did you not notice that you are Sir Thomas, not King Thomas?' Margaret repeated. The king is married, Wyatt said. Henry's eye turned to Anne because he tires of her sister Mary. They are nothing but a Boleyn family pair to fit his fancy. Do you not also fit only your fancy for Anne? Despising your own wife does not undo the fact that you too are married. Why must Margaret speak the truth? I have a gorgon for my sister and a jade for my wife. Leave me to my love. You care nothing for tomorrow. When the king no longer finds your impertinence charming, you will be friendless, and so will Anne. Doom and gloom, dear Agitor. You do not know the king as I do. He likes these games between men. Now he knows that I care much for her, and she cares for me. He will leave the field. Anne was in the doorway, her mien unapproachable. His sister gave Anne a weighty glance as she left them. Why do you stand so stiffly? Thomas smiled and extended his hand. She stepped into the room and closed the door behind her. You are a blind man. Blind with love. Must you? I am in a terrible plight. You showed the king the ribbon I gave you. Why would you do such a thing? Thomas was taken aback by her sharpness. Why did you give him your ring? Because he asked for it. Because he is the king and because I am a lady in waiting. You should have said your heart was already taken. He saw Anne was not charmed by this answer. For one who has lived his entire life at court, you are a rustic, an empty-headed dolt. He defended himself. I was valiant. I showed him where your true feelings lie. You were jousting with him. He knows my claim to you is greater. 
How? You are both married. He is the King of England. You are a lord over a village in Kent. Hurtful words. Anne, are we not in love? Do we not share the truest of all understandings? Do you think that the king will thrill to hear that I love you and not him? Do you not see that you have pressed the point? If I choose you, he will send you away. Why did you do it? The lady thought herself clever, but she misread his friend the king. He will forget, shrug his shoulders, and some other lady will be on his mind. When that happens, you and I can meet again. But until then, I cannot. What did you say? I cannot be with you while the king shows me favour. I seek to protect you, though you seek to undo both of us. You have ruined everything for the sake of your cock. You and my sister make this a battle when it is not even a skirmish. He put his arms around her waist. She allowed him to kiss her, but her lips stayed flat and dry against his. He let her go and found himself baffled and alone. You very brilliant Tudor files mm -hmm. out there have probably already heard this story about the king and Sir Thomas Wyatt sparring over these two tokens, a ring and a ribbon, during a game of bowls. It originally came from Sir George Wyatt's Extracts from the Life of Queen Anne Boleyn, spelt B-O-L-E-I-G-N-E, -E, because luckily no one cared about spelling. <laughs> I wish it was still the same. And the whole title is Extracts from the Life of the Virtuous Christian and Renowned Queen Anne Boleyn. Virtuous Christian and Renowned. Mm. Wow. In an earlier episode, we introduced Sir George Wyatt as the grandson of Sir Thomas. He wrote this hagiography about Anne later in the reign of Elizabeth I. Probably to impress Elizabeth, but we don't know if Elizabeth read it. And in his book, Sir George really stressed his grandfather, Thomas Wyatt's, love for Anne, not just friendship, but love. He actually said that the poem we used in an earlier episode, The Lively Sparks That Issue From Thine Eyes, was written the first moment Sir Thomas Wyatt saw Anne Boleyn. Mm. So it's hard to know if there's any real basis for this particular story of Anne giving Wyatt and Henry these sort of competing tokens, but we like to think there is. We love a love triangle. <laughs> and we find that compelling. And here we've included this older sister to look on in concern. Older siblings can be so disapproving. Party poopers. In this case, though, Margaret has a point. It would be very dangerous for her brother to get on Henry VIII's bad side. He really regards Henry as his bro, or perhaps bruh. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he thinks this kind of rivalry about Anne will amuse the king and not enrage him. At this point in 1526, Henry was despotic and temperamental, but he had not turned on those people who were close to him in the murderous way that he ultimately does later in his rule. This is before the fall of Cardinal Wolsey. It's before the execution of Sir Thomas More, before the execution of Sir Thomas Cromwell. And at this point, of course, Henry only had one wife. Henry and Catherine of Aragon were married for some 20 years. Henry's subsequent five marriages all happened in a span of 14 years. In 1526, Sir Thomas Wyatt would not dream for a second that Henry could be serious about Anne. 
that the king would regard her as anything other than a possible mistress, a fling, was absolutely inconceivable. So to begin with, there was no divorce in 16th century England. I hear people say that Henry broke with Rome in order to obtain a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, and I don't want to be one of those annoying people who corrects other people. But maybe in this instance you're going to. <laughs> but I will not make a habit of Okay, that. don't. I would hate to see Facebook posts from you about, you know, grammar and, uh, and use of correct words in different <laughs> contexts and I just could, I couldn't take it. Never. And besides that, I'm just not that good a speller or that precise about grammar. Although I do try to look it up. Yes, look it up. And do well. But Henry did not seek a divorce. He sought a religious declaration of nullity, or more commonly known as an annulment. A divorce ends a legal marriage, and that was not permitted in 16th century England. An annulment means the marriage was never valid to begin with. Of course, we value the idea that if a couple are unhappy together, they can and should be able to separate for any reason. But the Tudors saw marriage as the backbone of society and the hierarchy within the family as the natural order. So ending a marriage, divorcing, was not permitted. They regarded it as dangerous for the entire community to permit a couple to divorce. They, they believed that would encourage chaos and disorder. The Catholic Church considers marriage a sacrament, and in the 16th century, a declaration of nullity could only come from the religious authorities. And only on a few very specific grounds that meant the marriage should never have taken place to begin with and was thus invalid. The first was that the pair were too closely related. Second, that the couple were under the age of consent, which was 12 for a girl and 14 for a boy. Which is disturbingly young, but marriages at that age rarely happened. And if we want to think we're so much more reasonable than the Tudors, in fact, there are states in the U.S., where the marriage age is still 12 for girls and 14 for boys. I know. It's, it's, it's upsetting, actually. The third allowance for an annulment was that the marriage was never consummated. And fourth, that one or both of the couple had been previously contracted to someone else. And this idea of pre-contract is something that comes up a lot in Tudor history. And these conditions would be pretty hard to meet after the union because issues of pre-contract age and kinship would, of course, be determined before the ceremony. That was the purpose of the reading of the bands. Three Sundays before the marriage ceremony, the upcoming union would be announced in the parish churches. In case anyone forgot the prohibitions for why a marriage should not take place, these bands would be read aloud. And the community would have time to voice any misgivings. If there were issues, the couple would have to resolve them before the marriage and get permission from the religious authorities to go ahead. And it was tricky to prove that a marriage should be annulled after the fact. And the consummation clause was also complicated. That could be one person's word against another, of course. The consummation of a marriage was really, really critical. Without consummation, the marriage was not valid. And I used to think all these 16th century marriage rituals of the family preparing the bed and escorting the couple to their chamber and hanging up a blood-stained sheet the next morning were just sort of weird, voyeuristic, I don't know, almost creepiness. But 
Actually, it was all part of the proof that was needed to show that the marriage was binding. And also, the marriage is in the community. It's part of the community. It's not just you and this other person getting married. It's it's supporting the community as a whole. And I think that's a very different idea than we have now. Yes, I agree. But also, I think it was to show the community that this marriage was consummated and that it was a real marriage and that it needed to be respected that way and that people were bound by it, that, yes. the, end of, that the couple had been bound by this the consummation. And I've even read that one or the other of the couple's parents would sometimes be in the room with the newlywed to make sure they have sex. Can you imagine your mother-in-law <laughs> being in there with you? Of course, it seems disturbing to us, yes. But I guess if you're worried that someone is going to try to get out of the marriage, it makes some sense. I No, I agree with you. I mean, if you're, this was the way that these people were actually bound together, that they were bound together legally and and in the eyes of the community. So you didn't want somebody trying to wiggle their way out of the marriage after, after the event. Because honestly, especially for women, it it would really destroy the next possibility for them to be to marry somebody yes. else. It's interesting that these are the four conditions that the church accepted for declaring a marriage invalid because I'm not a religious scholar, but I believe in the New Testament, Jesus says that sexual immorality is the only grounds for divorce, which, of course, we've said is different than annulment, but divorce. Yes, but there is divorce from bed and board in this time period which could be obtained on grounds of sexual immorality or cruelty. The man could claim a separation for one or the other of the conditions. So if you were either sexually immoral or cruel, the woman had to prove both sexual immorality and cruelty to be able to get a divorce from bed and board. And that would be really hard because a man was legally permitted to beat his wife. So how could you prove cruelty? Well... (laughs) There were rules about how cruel you could be. Your husband could only use a stick as wide as his thumb, which is why there's the expression rule of thumb. Mm. Wow. See, yeah. So as long as you didn't do permanent harm to your wife or kill her, you could beat her without any recrimination. Sure. And trying to prove that you had been mistreated was extremely difficult and risky because also the wife would have nowhere to escape to. The wife was technically the husband's property. Right, and anyone who gave the wife shelter could be accused of either stealing or, in some cases, kidnapping if you helped her escape. Yeah, so there's really, the laws were so against women. Uh, Well, as they have been for thousands of years. Petitions for divorce from bed and board were almost exclusively brought by men. And if for some reason this divorce was granted, which it usually wasn't, it, it meant that the couple could legally live separately and that they had no sexual obligations to each other. Because remember, at this time, Having sex with your husband was a, was an obligation within marriage. It wasn't a choice. Right. It was part of your your legal responsibility. So if you got a divorce from bed and board, the husband, who was, of course, in control of all the couple's finances, was obliged to pay the wife's upkeep. And the children by the couple were not made illegitimate. So it was better for the children and actually probably also for the wife. Yes. and But I think it's important. It's called divorce, but... This was not actually a divorce in the sense that you could then 
marry someone else. Right. It was so it was more like what we would call a legal separation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's basically what Wyatt arranged with his wife because he claimed she was unfaithful soon after Thomas Wyatt the younger was born. But I don't think in their case it was a legal arrangement. I think probably many unhappy couples arranged their lives this way, but maybe they didn't go through the process of actually getting it legally. Well, because the legal process is extremely expensive. Right. And in most cases, it didn't work anyway. And and you, there wasn't that much to gain. There might not have been any point because the separation didn't allow the people to marry again. But an annulment, which, as we've said here, was almost impossible to get, allowed remarriage in the church. And that was what Henry, of course, wanted. Right. And in this chapter of Time's Riddle, we're in 1526, and the king has not begun any formal inquiry into annulling his marriage from Catherine of Aragon. But it's very likely that it was already on his mind. And it probably had been for quite some time. Yes, because at this point, Henry is 35 and Catherine is 41. Mm. And that's a real problem for her because her physicians informed Henry that she would be unlikely to have any more children. It's so icky that all these men would get together and talk about the Queen of England that way. You know, like she was a broodmare. It's true, but, you know, they They saw it as her job. It was her job, yes, and her job to bear a son. And to be fair, Henry's sex life was also discussed by his doctors. Royal sex lives were a matter of national security. That's true. It was. It was a national security issue whether there were going to be heirs to the throne. And when Henry stopped having sex with Catherine sometime in the early 1520s, People were, you know, people at court were worried about that because after this doctor's pr- pronouncement, he, I think he didn't see much point, which is pretty cold. But, um, okay, I'm going to ask one of my awkward questions. Okay, please do. Well, in a society where sex was so linked to procreation, you know, as we all know, you know, and talk about wives often had to, you know, endure sex with partners they were not at all attracted to. So you think they used that horrible advice, lie still and think of England? Yes, but, okay, but what about the husband? I mean, not to state the obvious, but it's must be kind of hard to get the old uh, machinery going <laughs> if there's no desire. I guess they also had to think of England, but maybe England in a string bikini. <laughs> Maybe Britannia, (laughs) Britannia and a thong. Yes, or a rough and nothing else. (laughs) But they probably tried an aphrodisiac. There were recipes for spiced wine with honey, which would be drunk to warm, you know, the loins and to kindle the fire within. That sounds nice, actually. But some of the mood makers from this time period sound like they actually would have been mood Killers. Oh, you're thinking about that idea of windy meats. Yes. The ancient Roman physician Galen was considered an authority on aphrodisiacs. He said that eating windy meats... Doesn't that make you hot? Just (laughs) that phrase? (laughs) Would create a wind in the body so that the penis would blow up because of the wind and inflate, and that would encourage desire and potency. The 16th century physician Philip Burrow wrote this advice for men based on this advice of Galen's. Quote, windy meats are good for him, as be chickpeas, beans, scallions, 
leeks, the root and seed of parsnips, pine nuts, sweet almonds, and other such like. So he calls these foods meats, but it's not a literal use of meat. Here it just means food, but scallions and leeks? Mm, I don't think I want people breathing scallion and <laughs> leek breath. <laughs> and the downside is, of course, the windy meats make you gassy. Oh, and Henry was so concerned with making legitimate sons and having lots of wind in his penis, he probably ate a lot of windy meats before he got in bed with the queen. I mean, it, it's so the opposite of the sex you see in the Tudors, right? Can you imagine what it was really like with big Henry farting his way over to the bed with his scallion and leek breath? <laughs> okay. That image gives me new insight into the lines that the bastard Edmund says in Lear about the stale marriage bed and the lusty extramarital bed. He says, why brand they us with base, with baseness, bastardy, base, base? Who in the lusty stealth of nature take more composition and fierce quality than doth within a dull, stale, tired bed? go to the creating a whole tribe of fops got tween asleep and wake. Edmund is making that distinction between sex for duty, where you're between sleep and wake. With and, your windy meats. Yeah. <laughs> and sex for pleasure, who has lusty stealth Right, he's in a job. Yeah. yeah. The Tudors really understood that. I mean, of course there were marriage beds in the 16th century that were also lustful. And, and let's hope most of them were. But so many marriages, especially in the nobility, were made for political reasons. And mutual attraction on both sides, you know, was completely beside the point. Poor Catherine. Once she couldn't produce any more children, Henry didn't have any motivation to have sex with her. I mean, it must have been so hurtful. I mean, she was very in love with him at one point. Right, and he was supposedly very in love with her. Yes, and she did have at least six pregnancies during her childbearing years. But two babies died at birth, and two sons died in infancy. Only Mary survived. How different English history might have been if one of those sons had lived. Do you think there would have been no Reformation? Well... Let's review. Henry wouldn't have had the reason to break with Rome. Catherine would have remained his queen and a good Catholic queen. So, no, I don't think so. Not in Henry's reign anyway. Maybe a Reformation would have come later. Because it was all over Europe. Yeah. When he decided to seek an annulment from Catherine, Henry used the grounds of kinship. Because Catherine had been married to his brother Arthur, which apparently he didn't notice for 20 years. <laughs> And at the time of Henry and Catherine's marriage, Henry VII had gotten the Pope's okay. But Henry VIII claimed the permission should never have been given. Right. Uh, again, 20 years later. Below those many years yeah. ago, yes. And Catherine always maintained that her marriage to Arthur was invalid anyway because of the condition that it was never consummated. And as we've said, that was a grounds for annulment in the church. So as far as Catherine was concerned, she was never married to Arthur. And I believe Catherine because she was way too pious to lie about something that would 
have affected her immortal soul. I mean, I just don't believe it, actually. And then, of course, they they tried to make they tried to sort of say she didn't understand whether she had had sex with Arthur or not. I mean, this is a woman who's been married for twenty years and had six pregnancies. No, it's insulting. I know it's insulting. No, she knew, but you know, actually, she spoke very well to defend herself. Yeah. She 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 tried to remain extremely dignified. Yeah. Although Henry made it very difficult. Trying to obtain an annulment was politically risky for Henry. I mean, not that I'm saying I have sympathy for him. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, we again, we sort of look back and we think it, he didn't he didn't have anything to lose by trying it, but that was isn't the case at all. No, because Catherine's nephew was arguably the most powerful man in Europe. He was the Holy Roman Emperor, and. Her siblings and their children were also in positions of power. All over Europe. But it it was also risky at home for Henry because Catherine was very popular with the English people. And she had been their queen for 20 years. And she had been in England for longer than that. And also by annulling his marriage, declaring it invalid, Henry would be making his daughter, his one legitimate child, Princess Mary, illegitimate. And we know people still love a princess. No, but also there would be at that moment no, no legitimate heir to the throne. Mm. So, I mean, he's taking he's taking a huge chance, right? Presuming he's going to get another one. She was his only leg- legitimate child, but his son Henry Fitzroy was illegitimate. And for a king to annul a marriage after 20 years with a spouse who was a princess in her own right, as Catherine of Aragon was... And with a royal daughter, it was just, it was crazy behavior. And it was completely unprecedented. This is just not what people did. But, okay, spoiler alert, (laughs) Henry got his annulment in the end once he, you know, went around the Pope and declared himself head of the church in England. But I have to say, I think a lot of people in England and all over the world at the time did not believe that annulment was valid, and that would certainly come back to to bite him. You know. Yes, and and Catherine was extremely tough about it. Yeah, she never ever backed down. But she was on her own, and she was banished from court. And her daughter, Princess Mary, was declared a bastard. Mm. And when it came down to it, none of her powerful relatives really protected Catherine. No, no, they didn't. I mean, you know, in the end, I mean, it's. We always want it to go another way, but powerful men usually end up protecting other powerful men. And, I mean, no wonder Elizabeth I never got married. But in this chapter, it's early days. Even if the king had confided to his good friend Wyatt that he had his doubts about his marriage to Catherine, Wyatt would never, ever dream that the king would be thinking of Lady Anne Boleyn, a low English woman, to take her place? I mean, not low like we think of low. No, but... no. I mean, she was actually pretty high up. But ne- but nevertheless, I mean, why would he divorce Catherine of Aragon to marry Lady Anne Boleyn? I mean, she but... wasn't a peer. No, no. And, you know, and I personally think Henry was set on invalidating his marriage to Catherine way before he got became infatuated with Anne. I don't think he saw Anne and then he suddenly decided he needed to divorce his wife. I know that's terribly romantic, but I just don't think that's the way it was. I mean, Henry, at 
even when he started thinking about annulling his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, he would be envisioning a second marriage to bring him not only this incredibly important heir, but also all the things that a royal marriage was supposed to be for. International alliances, power, riches, and also he might actually choose somebody younger than Anne. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Anne was in her mid-twenties by this point, and Henry was really needed somebody who was going to have a lot of childbearing years. So I just I think it it wasn't his first idea to marry her. Oh no. And Wyatt tells Margaret that Henry's interest in Anne is just meaningless. He assumes it will go the way of Henry's fling with her sister, Mary Boleyn. You know, there was rumor even that he had had a fling with their mother. Yes, yeah. No. I mean yeah. He was a goer. <laughs> like if he wasn't gonna get something from it, the idea that he was in love and so he was gonna Marry her, her, which was not necessary for a king when you no. were in love. Mary is, Mary Boleyn, as you all know, is considered the other Boleyn girl. And she was only a year or two older than Anne. And the timing of her affair with the king is a, is a little uncertain, but it was in the early 1520s, and no one is sure exactly how long it lasted. And Mary was married in 1520 to Sir William Carey, and her fling with Henry either began then or soon after, and... William was a very close friend of Henry's, so that sounds really awkward to me. It's true, but Carey was no Othello. He took the lands and the title the king rewarded him with, and he did not make a fuss. No, and later there were rumors that William's children with Mary were really the king's. But Henry Henry never claimed that they were, and one was a son, but, you know, it could have gotten very complicated because William and Mary were married, and could Henry claim one child but not the other? It it, it would have been hard. And at this point, Henry already had a son with Elizabeth Blunt, and he was born in 1519. So that was a less complicated situation because Elizabeth Blunt was not married when Fitzroy was born. And after Fitzroy's birth, Henry seems to have, you know, kind of ended his thing with Elizabeth Blunt. And apparently, the birth of a healthy son makes things much worse for Queen Catherine. And maybe it encouraged Henry to think of getting rid of her. Because Henry pointed at Fitzroy's birth as a sign that he was not the problem with having a legitimate male heir. It was an issue with his union with Catherine that was preventing God from granting them any living sons. Fitzroy's birth must have just been a dagger to Catherine's heart. I I mean, I agree. After all this time and all these dead children, then to make things worse for his queen, Henry takes his other mistress, Mary Boleyn, and he probably kept things going with her until 1525, 1526. You know, meanwhile, Catherine knows things are tough for her. It's interesting historians only have a hazy idea about Henry's mistresses and timing because Henry never declared a maîtrise en titre, which was the norm at other courts of the time. Francis I's mistress, Diane Poitier, Poitier, she was the official royal mistress. And actually, people talk about Madame de Pompadour. I know it was later. But she was also an official royal mistress. So this was definitely a 
a title that people were given, and sometimes at the Eng- and at the English court too. It wasn't just at the French court. And they were known to have both those women certainly a great a deal, deal of influence. influence. Yes, this is an official position, and the king's royal mistress would be acknowledged publicly mm-hmm. and have rooms at the palace, and have quite a bit of status. A public acknowledgement of a royal mistress made it crystal clear that the woman was off limits to other men. So. If you had a son by that woman, you knew it was the king's son. It was the king's son son or child. So actually, in a way, it's also a way to kind of have two wives at once. Right, or more. Or more, and have a higher chance of having a male heir. Right. So, you know, let's put ourselves in, in Thomas Wyatt's situation right here in 1526. I mean, he's flirting with Anne. Henry's flirting with Anne. But... There's no, there's nothing official about it. There's no claim. I mean, Henry could easily make a claim, and he chooses not to. So Wyatt just is, thinks they're having fun. But actually, Henry did end up offering this position of royal mistress and to only this one woman, Lady Anne Boleyn. He never offered it to anybody before that, and actually he never offered it to anybody after that. I do think Anne was special to Henry. She was special to him, but he didn't think of her as a wife to begin with. I mean, to me, the offer he made indicates that he was thinking of getting rid of Catherine long before he imagined actually marrying Anne and making her his queen, which would have just been inconceivable at the beginning of this whole thing. In the beginning, he was thinking of getting rid of Catherine, making a new advantageous marriage for himself with some royalty. Young royal, yes. And bestowing on Anne the title of royal mistress, and then he would get everything he wanted. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) But, as we know, Anne declined, holding out for marriage instead. Maybe she would have been better off taking that original title, but again, we can't look back like that. And in this chapter, it is 1526, and Henry is just beginning to show some interest in Anne. No one can foresee how serious that interest is going to get, least of all... Sir Thomas Wyatt, who thinks he is perhaps not king, but much better looking. And he thinks they're having fun. He thinks this is just guys, you know. I don't know. What do guys keep saying? Locker room talk. Yeah, you know, he keeps saying he thinks it's locker room talk. But Anne has to be very careful not to upset the king by rejecting him outright because she does want to avoid trouble for herself. And and Thomas Wyatt, too. She's in a complicated position. She works for Catherine. She, w- she works for Henry VIII, sort of. You know, yeah. you, you can't turn down the, the king's interest. You have, to, you have to play along. She's in a very complicated position. So anyway, join us next time when we go back or, for- or forward or <laughs> back where Constance's life is also getting very complicated. Join us next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.